known as the Kansas City Butcher, Robert Burdellin, entered the twisted mind of a man who transformed his home into the chambers of horror. Uncover the shocking details of Robert Burdella's sadistic torture and murder spree that an unsuspecting community never knew about. Piece together the shocking evidence and hear the chilling accounts of surviving victims as we unravel the dark secrets of the infamous serial killer. Brace yourself for a bone-chilling exploration of Robert Burdella's crimes in this upcoming episode. But first, I want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine a light on these cases and remember the victims who were affected. What's up, Donuts? It's Gina. Y'all know what time it is. This episode involves rape, mutilation, sodomy, torture, animal cruelty, and language. Listener discretion is advised. I want to put out a special listener discretion for my Donut Kings out there. Gentlemen, I'm giving you a personal advisory. I am going to assume that this is an episode that you might want to just sit out when I was researching this episode I was literally going back and forth on whether or not you all gonna want to hear this I hope this is something that I guess you want to hear but hold on to your butts this is going to be a very bumpy and explicit ride Welcome back, Donuts. If you're new to the Fried Dough community, I'm your girl, Gina, and I'm thrilled to have you here with me today. But before we jump into today's episode, just make sure you hit that follow button on whatever podcast platform you're listening to me on. The button also might be subscribe or collect. Just hit that button so you will know when the next episode come out. Today, we're going to start something new for this podcast in light of the missing persons numbers that has been rising in my state, I've decided every episode I will feature a different missing persons. So with that being said, this is Fried Dough True Crime Podcast, and this is the Kansas City Butcher, Robert Bordella. Born January 31st, 1947, Bordella grew up in a normal family. He attended church services regularly, and his father was steadily employed at the Ford Motor Company. Basically, his childhood was uneventful and and nondescript, except for his eyesight that caused him to wear thick prescription lenses. That caused him to get bullied in school a lot. In early 1966, at the age of 16, Bordella's 39-year-old father died unexpectedly of a heart attack, and that left a lasting effect on him. His mother remarried shortly after, which he refused to accept her new husband as his stepfather. When he was in high school, he had a part-time job as a line cook at a local restaurant. He did well in school. He had above-average intelligence, although some teachers became frustrated to teach him. 
He was intelligent and sometimes overconfident in his intellect. And some of the things that he said would come off as being rude or condescending, but it was only towards the women. This was something that stayed with him for his entire life. At that job, he was sexually assaulted by another male employee. That was the first homosexual encounter that he ever had. This was the time where those kind of matters wasn't reported to authorities, and he kept it hidden from his family and his friends, his closest friends. Shortly after his assault, he went to go see this movie called The Collector. And The Collector is a story about a man who became obsessed with a female co-worker and subsequently takes her prisoner, convinced she would eventually fall in love with him. This was set in motion a deep fantasy of Brodella's that would result in his own fetish towards taking prisoners, but put his own spin on it. Still suffering from the effects of his sexual assault and the death of his father, he enrolled in Kansas City Art Institution. During that time, his fantasies towards torture began to increase. And this is where he first began experimenting on animals, including boiling a duck alive, as well as killing a chicken and a dog, both of which he injected with various sedations and drugs to gauge their reactions. Two years into the program, he was expelled from using a dead dog as a part of an art exhibit. While in college, he became more outgoing and opinionated and enjoy engaging in lively debates with people he considered intelligent. He also started showing mild signs of OCD during his early 20s. He would pride himself for being on time for appointments and meetings. After being kicked out of art school, he became an accomplished chef, began being involved in the neighborhood watch program. He would volunteer for several programs created to help young men and teenagers turn their troubled lives around. At the age of 20 years old, he bought his home at 4315 Charlotte Street in Kansas City. He was a longtime bachelor and an open homosexual who owned a small curiosity antique shop down at the old Westport Fleet Market. He more or less kept himself. He preferred the company of young teenage boys who sold themselves on the street of Kansas City. He had numerous relationships during the 70s with several young men, often exchanging room and board for sexual company. During that time, combined with heavy alcohol and drug use, his metabolism started to slow down and he started to gain weight. In turn, the only way he was able to find affection was to pay for it. And that's when the resentment started to form. In 1982, Bordella became sexually and emotionally involved with a Vietnam veteran, but the relationship ended abruptly. And within a few weeks, he began once again seeking comfort with the company of young men prostitutes. During this time, he would offer young men a place to sleep and live. And at the time, it wasn't uncommon for all of the bedrooms in his large home to be occupied. Some young men stayed because they needed a place to sleep. Others were there because they were involved physically with Bordella. In 1984, two years after his traumatic breakup, Bordella began spending time more and more with a 19-year-old male prostitute named Jerry Howell, who he had known since 1979 
when the boy was 14 years old. Bordella's own fantasies were starting to grow when he found himself often masturbating to the thought of bondage and inflicting pain on the young man. In July 1984, Jerry was arrested and called Bordella for bail money. So Bordella paid it for him. So y'all know the story when loaning money, excuses start coming from Jerry. I'm not insinuating Bordella had the right to do anything of the following, but it's the age-old situation of loaning money. Jerry continued to make excuses as to why he could not pay the money back. The issue became a point of focus for Bordella, and with each passing day, he became more resentful and angry over the subject. Whether that was what finally set him off, no one will ever be sure. However, on the evening of July 4th, 1984, Bordella picked up Jerry and the two men returned to his house at 3415 Charlotte Street, where they spent a few hours partying together, drinking several cans of beer, smoking a couple of joints, as well as injecting themselves with, with a variety of drugs, including cocaine. It had been several months the two men had been together sexually, although Bordella had tried several times, but Jerry refused to sleep with him. Each time, Jerry would back out and refuse to go through with it, which was angering Bordella as he felt the young man owed him for all that he had done for him. So Bordella decided he would simply drug him enough so Jerry was unable to stop his advances to prevent him from having anal sex with him. Bordella loaded up the syringe with a large amount of dose of tranquilizers to render Jerry unconscious, and within a few minutes, he was sound asleep. He stripped off his clothes and tied his hands behind his back. This would be the first time Bordella would give fully into the violent fantasies of complete control over his prisoner. He injected Jerry into his buttock cheeks with another heavy dose of drugs to ensure he remained under control. While he was unconscious, he raped him repeatedly until he was unable to ejaculate anymore. And then he followed the assault with a cucumber and carrot to the point where Jerry's rectum was profusely bleeding. Afterwards, he took Polaroids to capture the moment. Through the entire day, Jerry was kept drugged, subdued, and tied to the bed. Unable to fight back or defend himself, Jerry remained incapacitated through the next day. July 5th, Bordella went to his shop to open it up as normal. But thinking about Jerry being tied up and drugged in his home, he closed the shop early to return home to continue the molestation of Jerry as many times as he wanted upon returning home that evening. Jerry was given more tranquilizers and Bordella continued raping him again each time, making a note in his journal for the position and what he had done to him. A sense of anger and aggression started to seep into his mind and Bordella walked across the room, picked up a metal rod, and started beating Jerry on the back several times for no apparent reason. At approximately 10 p.m. on the evening of July 5th, Jerry died from choking on his own vomit. Bordella didn't know whether or not it was the assault or the drugs that he injected him with. All he knew was that Jerry was dead and he had to dispose of the body. So what he did was he drug Jerry's body down the stairs into the basement. 
there is where he got the nickname the Kansas City Butcher because he began to suspend his body from two ropes tied to his feet and suspended them with two pulleys he had mounted to the ceiling. Raising his body upside down, he proceeded to slice into the 19-year-old's jugular vein and arteries of his arms, which allowed him to bleed out faster. So he's sitting there and he's watching the body bleed out and he's taking pictures. He finds himself becoming aroused. He started masturbating. Once the body finished bleeding out, Bordello decided that he needed to dismember the body into small manageable pieces. He used a razor sharp knife to dismember the body into small manageable pieces. When he found that the blade on the knife wasn't sufficient to cut the body through the bone, he used a gas chainsaw to finish chopping up the body of Jerry Howell. With the job complete, what he did was wrap the pieces into a newspaper, then put the newspaper in large bags and he set them out with the garbage. Ten months later, after reliving his crime with the pictures, fear for someone to find the body parts at the landfill and fearing that other neighbors hearing the chainsaw or Jerry's father reporting him missing, he hid his pictures in a loose floorboard. So one day he invited a friend of his named Robert Sheldon to come over and party with him and stay a few nights as he had all the time. While hanging out with Robert, he would try to consider whether or not Robert was a good candidate, quote unquote, to be his prisoner. So during that night, Bordella injected Robert several times, but it didn't take effect. Robert was already intoxicated, but he was still awake. Bordella decided that Robert was not good for his fantasy, and rather than taking him prisoner, he decided to go to bed. The next morning, Bordella found Robert Sheldon on the bathroom floor complaining about stiffness in his joints. Bordella took him down to the University of Kansas Medical Center to ensure he was okay. That evening, the two men began to party again. Bordella gave Robert Sheldon a very heavy dosage of tranquilizers, including crushed Valium. After Robert passed out, Bordella stripped him of his clothes and tied his legs together and carried the limp man up the stairs to the third floor of the house. It was just after 11 p.m. when Bordella first began to sodomize the unconscious man repeatedly until he was unable to ejaculate and then started using carrots and cucumber. Bordella thought the only thing that could make this better was that if his captive was permanently blind. So what did he do? He used a syringe to get some Drano and put it into Robert's left ear and left eye. Robert started screaming in agony, but that only excited Bordella. Robert was in so much pain and making so much noise, Bordella reluctantly gave him tranquilizers, started beating him mercifully with a pipe and injecting him with more chemicals and drugs. Gagging him with a cloth and piano wire, he ignored Robert's plea for him to stop and continued his systematic rape and torture of the battered body. Robert was the first person that he ever tried to hook up his 7,000 volt transformer on 
Using alligator-style clips, he attached them to his nipples and turned the current on for a few seconds. Sheldon's body was stiff and jump on the bed each time the electricity jolted. So one day he returned home to find a handyman named Mark Wallace. He hired several months earlier. He finally arrived unexpectedly to trim his tree along the house. So this day he decided to kill Robert Sheldon as fast and as quiet as he could. He put a transparent bag over Robert's head and tethered it in the back of his neck. The plastic bag started filling with moisture. His eyes started to bulge, his chest heaving. Despite the sedative drug still in his body, Bordella watched in curiosity and a bit of regret because he wanted to keep Robert a little bit longer. Within a few minutes, it was over. Robert Sheldon was dead. On April 15th, Bordella suffocated Robert Sheldon. Bordella dismembered his body, but this time using the bathtub, which he bled him out before cutting him into pieces to be disposed of with the trash. But instead of putting Robert's whole body out with the garbage, Bordella kept the trophy. He buried his severed head in his backyard. On June 22nd, almost a whole calendar year after Bordella's first kill of Jerry Howell, Mark and Bordella began to start drinking. And shortly after 1 a.m., Bordella suggested to help Mark calm down and relax. So he offered him to give him an injection of a calming tranquilizer. So Mark was like, cool. Bordella gave Mark an injection of one and a half cc's of chlorprosamine which put Mark out instantly. But then after he was down, he gave him another dose of an injection of ketamine, which rendered Mark completely unconscious. He then stripped Mark of his clothing. He tied his hands together and pulled him over to the couch where he slowly masturbated to Mark's backside until he climaxed. With no sign of movement from Mark, Bordella used the carrot to penetrate Mark for several minutes before deciding to carry him upstairs to the bedroom on the third floor of the house. Bordella enjoyed the muffled screams of Mark. If Mark would fight back too much, he would hit him in the head with a rubber mallet. He wrote in his journal that he enjoyed the confusion that Mark gave him after every time he would hit him in the head. At one point, he repeatedly hit Mark's testicles, causing him to cry out. For several hours, Bordella raped Mark repeatedly, electrocuting him with the alligator clips, attaching them to his nipples and his swollen testicles over and over while snapping pictures and making notes in his book. At 11 a.m., Bordella gave Mark another large injection of drugs so he can go to the shop. But arriving home after 4 p.m., he found Mark awake and trying to untie himself. Bordella got mad and gave him another injection of tranquilizers, which put him back out. So now Bordella is upset, so he put soap and water in a large syringe and performed an enema on Mark to clean him out and lubricate him enough so that he can fit his fist in, which he was unable to do. During the night, he continued to inject Mark with more drugs. And just as the sun came up, he realized his torture methods no longer had effect on his victim. He checked the pulse and realized Mark was dead. 
in his diary he noted quote 7 a.m no signs of life it was june 23rd 1985 so now bordella cut up the body of mark wallace into small pieces and carefully wrapped them up into plastic and put them in a, a dog food bag and then a green garbage bag which he took them out to the curb for the next day he wrote down the license of the truck that actually came to pick up the garbage. After killing the first three men, he felt he was doing too much too soon because they were dying too early. He started trying to think of ways to obtain his control over his victims. But the word started getting around about Bordella, who had the reputation of taking advantage of young male prostitutes. So also Jerry Howe's father had been asking questions about where his son had vanished to. And everybody knew that Bordella was the last person to be seen with Jerry Howell and Robert Sheldon. Both had been friends with Bordella and both had last been seen with him. So police questioned Bordella when he showed up with his lawyer, but they couldn't find any evidence to tie the two men to Bordella. They also questioned a friend of Bordella named Todd Stoops, who lived with him a couple of times. He told them that he thought Bordella gave them something and they died of an overdose, but because he was in jail at the time, he really couldn't prove it. Bordella used to party a lot with these two guys. One was named Walter Ferris, and the other was named Gene Shaw. They were partying with Bordella a lot. And one day, he came home, and he saw that his house was broken into, and they were looking for drugs. So on September 26, 1985, Walter called Bordella and asked him to meet him at the Midnight Sun, a gay bar in Kansas City. He was still pissed off and holding a grudge about his house getting broken into. So when Walter called him, Bordella was like, sure. So he met him. It was around 7.30 p.m. And Walter asked if he could stay with him for a few days. By this time, Bordella already figured that he wanted to quote unquote keep Walter as his next victim so he was like cool come on so they got to the house and Bordella crushed up several tranquilizers into a bowl of chili and at 9 p.m. Walter was sleeping soundly on the sec in the second floor bedroom Bordella injected him with another dose of drugs to prevent him from fighting back and just as he did the others, a cycle of rape and torture would begin while making details of everything that he did into his notebooks. He repeatedly sodomized Walter for three hours before he started to regain conscience. This is when he tried this is when he tried out something new. He hooked up two cooking spatulas to a seven thousand watt transformer so he could shock and electrocute Walter at will. He would quickly move the spatulas wherever he wanted onto Walter's body. He electrocuted Walter's genitals and his eyelids. For the next several hours, Bordella would electrocute Walter and repeatedly rape him until the next morning. Walter was running the temperature just under a hundred a hundred degrees. He injected him with antibiotics, but still continued to sexually assault 
and torture watch affairs. At times, he was conscious but unable to sit up or fight. It was just after midnight when Bordella noted in his diary that Walter was ha- Walter had labor breathing and was snoring heavily. A little bit after that, he jotted down in his notepad that, quote, Ferris was 86, meaning that he was dead. It was September 27, 1985. Todd Stoops. Now, y'all remember Todd Stoops. He was at the um, police station and then he was in jail. He, you know, he was talking to the police about Bordello. So Todd Stoops, he was a 23-year-old drug addict and occasionally a prostitute who, alongside his wife, had twice lived briefly with Bordella in his house in 1984. After they moved out of the home the second time, Bordella did not see them again until, the, until a chance encounter at Kansas City Liberty Memorial Park on June 17, 1986. Bordella invited him to the house for lunch and sex. Bordella used the electrical shock paddles on Todd's eyes in the attempt to blind him, and he injected drain cleaner into his larynx to try to silence his screams. During the second week of Todd's capture, he asked Bordella for a soft drink and a sandwich, which Bordella refused. Todd burst into tears. On June 27th, he ruptured Todd's anal walls with his fist, causing bleeding to discharge. Towards the end of Todd's capture, he, he tried to feed him ice cream and soup, although Todd wasn't able to keep anything down. On July 7th, Todd Stoops died. A forensic pathologist later testified that the ruptured anus walls caused septic shock, which proved fatal. In the spring of 1987, Bordella became friendly with a 20-year-old man named Larry Wayne Pearson. Larry temporarily lived with Bordella and willingly performed chores around his house as a means of paying for rent. According to Bordella, Bordella started forming a plan to keep Larry on June 23, 1987. So two weeks after Bordella bailed Larry out of prison, Larry wasn't showing no type of desire of him wanting to get a job or paying Bordella back. So on the afternoon of June 23rd, Bordella and Larry drove around Kansas and started joking about robbing gay guys in Wichita. That evening, Larry got drunk with Bordella and Bordella injected him with chloroprosamine and moved him into the basement. There he bounded Larry's hands around his head and attached him to a pulley then injected him with drain cleaner and brought the electrical transformer down. But Larry had earned Bordella's trust as he cooperated with all of the abuse and torture. So Bordella rewarded Larry by moving him to the second floor. Larry trained himself to sleep without moving so he wouldn't piss Bordella off and return to the basement for more torture. After six weeks of capture, Larry just couldn't take it no more. So during a sexual assault, he deeply bit into Bordella's penis. Bordella had a tree trunk wrapping near him. So what he did, he started bludgeoning Larry into unconsciousness, then suffocated him with a bag. Then he went to go get treatment for his wounds. Larry's body was later dismembered in the basement and his head initially stored in a plastic bag inside Bordella's freezer 
before being buried in the backyard. It was July 7th. At 1 a.m. on March 1st, 1988, Bordella abducted his last victim, a 22-year-old male prostitute named Chris Bryson, which he lured to his house for payment for sex. There, once Chris got to the house, they talked and drank a little bit, and when Chris, when it was time to go upstairs, Chris was on his way upstairs, and before he got to the last step to the landing, Bordella knocked him out unconscious with an iron bar and bound his hands and feet to Bordella's bed, where the same kinds of method of abuse and torture started. But with Chris, Bordella repeatedly swabbed his eyes with ammonia, telling him all he needed to think about was me, you, and this house. After a few days, Bordella started to trust Chris a little bit more. So he started to talk to Chris and tell him about the abuse that he was going to inflict on him. And Chris was talking as if he was cool with the treatment. He was okay with it. So as a reward, Bordella started to allow him at the breakfast table. By the third day, Chris had earned sufficient trust from Bordella. So on that day, he asked Bordella, instead of tying his hands up, could he tie them in front of him to prevent his arms to fall asleep? He had also persuaded Bordella to leave the television on when Bordella left the room and to place the remote control between his legs whenever he was gone. Through investigations, Chris said that he thought about escaping all the time. So the following day, he got a chance. Bordella went to work asked to keep up the normal routine. Chris found a book of matches that Bordella left in a room and burned his restraints. Chris then jumped from the second story window, wearing nothing but a dog collar around his neck. In the process of his jump, he broke his foot. He then ran towards a meter reader walking on the other side of the street, shouting to them to call the police. The meter reader led Chris to the house he was about to approach, whereupon the occupant promptly called the police who arrived minutes later. Chris was questioned at the scene by four police officers. He initially claimed that he had been hitchhiking, then abducted by Bordella, who had kidnapped, raped, and tortured him for four days before he escaped by jumping out of the window from the property. He told them that Bordella had kept him bound to a bed on a second-story room. Throughout much of the time, he had been held against his will, repeatedly sodomized, drugged, and injecting his throat with drain cleaner to demolish his ability to speak loudly. As Chris spoke, the officers noted, that in addition to the dog collar and the broken foot, Chris had red swollen eyes and and visible scars and whelps across his entire body. Two officers were told to maintain a discreet surveillance of the property. Chris was then driven to the Menorah Medical Center, accompanied by a third officer, for treatment. As the fourth officer radioed the Kansas City Police Department, KCPD to request a former search warrant for the property to be drafted. So during further investigation, Christopher told that his captor shown him Polaroid images of men who appeared to be deceased and that he was told that he would never leave the property and if he become a nuisance or a threat, he would either subject him to greater levels of torture or simply kill. Shortly after noon that day, Bordella pulled up in his Toyota Tercel 
he walked up to the police car that was sitting outside his home and asked them what was going on. The police officers asked Bordella what was his name, and he answered Bob Bordella. Officer Harvey got out of the car and walked around and told Bordella that he was under arrest for investigation for for sexual assault investigation and handcuffed him and read him his Miranda rights. They asked him at that moment for consent to search his home and Bordella asked, what's his name? Bordella was never told whether or not it was a female or a male. Bordella also asked, where is he? The officers just basically told Bordella that we have him and he's talking. Bordella never allowed them to enter his home, so they took him down and they arrested him. So when the police officers got the search warrant to enter the home, they saw everything. They found human teeth, vertebrae, and they found 330 Polaroid pictures and 34 snapshot prints of various men were also found in Bordella's house. Robert Bordella pled guilty and confessed to torturing and killing six men between the years of 1984 and 1987. In response to questioning by his attorney, Bordella stated, I put a plastic bag over his head and tied it with a rope to allow him to suffocate. When questioned if he performed these acts deliberately and with malice, Bordella simply stated, yes. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Until being sentenced, Bordella was stationed in the Missouri State Penitentiary. He would later be temporarily placed in a protective custody at the Potosi Correctional Center due to concerns for his safety. In November 1988, an auction for Bordella's vast collection of artifacts and furniture confiscated from the house and business were held on four separate dates to pay his legal fees. Although many items sold for less than the expected price, by the end of the first days, it raised more than $60,000, equivalent to $151,000 as of 2023. Bordella's house was purchased by a local businessman for an undisclosed amount in December 1988. The property was later demolished. At 2 o'clock p.m. on October 8, 1992, Bordella complained to prison staff of severe heart pain and was taken to a cell to the prison infirmary. Medical staff determined his heart was unstable and called an ambulance. Bardella was taken to the hospital in Columbia, Missouri, where he was pronounced dead from heart from a heart attack at 3.55 p.m. He was 43 years old. If you made it this far in the episode, I want to take this time to thank everyone for listening and for your support and loyalty. Before you go, if you hadn't already, make sure you hit the subscribe button. That will assure you never miss an episode. Also, if you would like to support this podcast, just give a five-star review and share it with your friends. That will help this podcast grow. Don't forget to join our community on Instagram and on Twitter at Podcast. And if you have any case suggestions, reach out at Friedo at myyahoo.com or you could just inbox me on Instagram. I'll figure it out. So I want you to stay safe, stay vigilant with everyone and everything around you. 
And always, always, always trust your instinct. This week's missing person is Ricara Clayton Lumbus, age 17, female, black hair, brown eyes. She stands five foot even and weigh 120 pounds. Ricara was last seen in Cleveland, Ohio on May 20th, 2023. She was wearing sandals, a red coat, and black and white shorts. She has a tattoo on her neck and her nose is pierced. If anyone has any information regarding the whereabouts of Ricara, please contact the Special Victims Unit at 614-525-3555 or you can contact Crime Stoppers at 614-645-4749 or visit the website at www.p3tips.com. Com. All of the information will be in the show notes. Let's help bring Ricara home to her family.